Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We're Forward Radio, WFMP LP, Louisville, broadcasting from here in the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM, and we live stream anywhere you've got an internet signal at forwardradio.org. You can also go there to find archives of all of our local programming in podcast form through our SoundCloud service. You can just go to forwardradio.org and find the program you like. It'll all be archived there for you. And while you're there, why don't you get involved in becoming part of making this radio magic happen? This station is not paid for by anybody but you. It's a listener-sponsored service for the community, and it is a steal at just $20 a day to cover the basic expenses of our lease and our licenses and our equipment to keep us broadcasting 24-7. Hey, you could sponsor this entire day's broadcast with only $20 by going to forwardradio.org and clicking on donate. And hey, maybe you don't have any money, but you've got some time in these pandemic times. We need volunteers. That's how we stay on the air, whether you want to get behind the microphone to produce programming for us or behind the scenes to help keep the station running. Go to forwardradio.org, click participate and become part of the show today. Well, what we do each week here on Sustainability Now is take a deep dive into different topics in social, economic, and environmental justice. And today I want to talk about agriculture. And uh, I'm going to bring us back to a time just before the pandemic lockdown. The very last big public event I went to was in early March of this year. The Organic Association of Kentucky held their annual conference right here in Louisville, and I had the pleasure of uh, attending and recording some of the great sessions. So I want to share with you the keynote address from the Organic Association of Kentucky conference that took place on March 7th. The address was by Jean-Paul Stewart Cortens, and it was titled Growing Climate Solutions and Enhancing Biodiversity Through Organic Organic agriculture. Now, John Paul is a native of the Netherlands, as you'll hear from his accent, and he's a graduate of Warmendorf. It was part of the Gronhorst Agricultural College, specializing in biodynamic farming. He moved to the U.S., though, in 1986 and founded Roxbury Farm in 1990 and has dedicated much of his career to educating the next generation of farmers. He was part of the original Kraft Collaborative Regional Alliance of Farm training back in 95 and shared many resources on the Roxbury Agriculture Institute website known as Farm Manuals and has taught at numerous farming conferences like this one you're going to hear from. Between 2014 and 17, John Paul created the Pro Farmer Program at the Hudson Valley Farm Hub in Hurley, New York, an on-the-job training program to provide a path to farm ownership. In 2018, he and his wife Crystal Stewart Cortens founded Roxbury Agriculture Institute at Phila Farm to further education and research in regenerative agriculture. And uh, we're going to hear his great address to the conference that took place here in Louisville back on March 7th of 2020, just before the pandemic lockdown hit here on Sustainability Now. I'm very happy to be here and share with you. Chris and I have a small farm in Johnstown. It's right between the uh, Adirondack State Park and the Walmart Valley, so we're right in that intersection. So a little bit about myself for you who don't know who I am. I was born in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, and decided I wanted to be a farmer. And uh, I went to uh, the school for biodynamic agriculture. And I came to the U.S. And if you're such a thing as a movable farmer, it's probably me. I've been on a lot of different farms. And uh, started in Minnesota, went to New York, worked 
on an island in for three years, and then started Glassbury Farm in 1990. And then we were in two locations. Um, we were in Clower for 10 years, and then we moved to a new location to have long-term land tenure. Uh, the members, we have a, a large CSA, decided we needed long-term land tenure, so we moved uh, to a new location, uh, whereby the members invested in land, uh, whereby the farm with a 99-year ground lease. This is half of the farm where most of the vegetables were grown. Then five years ago, um, I was asked to help transition to a an acre uh, sweet corn farm to organic uh, systems, uh, which I did, and then I ended up um, starting a farm training program. And uh, I really, it was a tremendous opportunity for me to be able to learn a whole new skill set, writing curriculum, and also doing a lot of trials. We always joke that the students and I, we were freed up to make a lot of mistakes, which we did. And as a commercial farmer, um, I couldn't make as many mistakes. But with the farmers, with the students, um, we thought, like, let's try some really, some things that we have always dreamed about doing, but didn't have the resources to do so. I have left, and I want a new farm again. Um, <laughs> uh, right now, it's Philly Farm, this is in Johnstown. Um, my wife and I uh, started the Buckberry Agriculture Institute, whereby I take somewhat of the experience that I've had in my lifetime of farming, um, whereby I want to reach out and I work with farmers, I travel quite a bit. Uh, but we also continue with our trialing, um, and I'll tell you a little more about that later. And our uh, dominant source of income is seed garlic. So we're selling seed garlic. And Crystal actually give a talk after lunch on growing uh, great garlic. But the talk today is about climate change and the loss of biodiversity and how it intersects with organic farming. And when we think about climate change, a lot of us kind of respond to that as like a knee-jerk response, like, I need to be worried about my future generations, right? Our children, grandchildren. But my book, um, it happened right now. It's not something that is just about tomorrow. It's really about right now. I mean, this is a picture of the city islands where these school children are moving their benches, right, onto high water. This is happening. And it's happening close to home. I think all of you are experiencing the effects of the extreme weather patterns. Now, this is so you bought a farm, you can grow. And about 100 acres of it was on a floodplain, a 100-year floodplain. And I talked to the previous farmer, and he said, like, well, yeah, floodplain. The last time it flooded was in 1948, and that was because of ice. But OK, that was in March or April. I said, well, we will really take that risk. Well, this is 2009, and the flood came up fast. And the, the cows ended up being stuck between high water and a higher piece of ground. And we have to wait 24 hours to get really off that area again. And then we flooded again during Hurricane Irene in 2011, which really made us make some changes to how we were farming and where we were farming. What I want to do with this talk, I want to talk a little bit about the big picture. And I want to then also talk a little bit more about what I, am, what I feel I can contribute to mitigating some climate change becoming more resilient as a farmer, and how we can increase biodiversity as being an organic farmer. Well, let's start off with a little bit of the, the big picture here. And the big picture really is just that, you know, on a very somber note, agriculture has a terrible reputation on the environment. You know, desertification and uh, has been this one of the great consequences of that. But we know that land use in general has put hundreds of billions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And it continues to do so. 
greenhouse gases comes from agriculture. So this is a burden that we are all carrying as farmers. We are contributing to climate change. And not only are we contributing to greenhouse gases, agriculture contributes to the pollution of potable water, drinking water, the pollution of rivers, and here in this case, the dead zone in the Gulf, which is all due to management fertilizer and running off you know, from the Midwest. Climate change, of course, is directly linked to the extinction of many species. There are many reports that came out, and it's just now, this week, Newsweek came out with this report that the indication that corals are actually disappearing uh, hasn't happened for another 50 million years. And there's an indication that we're looking at a tremendous an era of mass extinction that's about to happen, unless we take some real action. And is there a relationship that maybe organic farmers can help offset some of these terrible consequences that we have on the environment? A lot of people believe so. And here's, for example, uh, and also we can take action. This is in Bavaria, which, to my knowledge, is a pretty conservative region in Germany. And they elected one and a half million signatures to pass a vote to have 30% of agriculture being organic farming. That is amazing. I mean, we can do that too, right? We need to get a grassroots movement to basically move that needle. We need to create a movement. And these people are not just doing this from an emotional perspective, they actually are well-read. Because there's overwhelming evidence, there's a positive correlation between organic farming and increasing biodiversity and helping to mitigate some climate change. This particular study was done in 2014 by FIBO, which is the Research Institute for Organic Farming in Switzerland, uh, with funding from the European uh, Union Group and iPhone. And uh, what, did, what they did in that report, they looked at all the studies that are out there to find the correlation between organic farming and climate change and biodiversity. And I just show you a couple of pages on the report, but you can see here that overwhelmingly these reports showed that either it was very beneficial or mildly beneficial, and there was only one area where it was not positive. That was really about productivity. But we're not talking about a huge amount of productivity, but see that the tremendous amount of gains that we can have if we convert to organic farming and positive changes we can have in the soil and the environment. Another page shows the increase in biodiversity on many organic farms. Here are 15 studies. This is the flora and fauna. 15 studies showing that there's a tremendous beneficial impact on flora. And then you can also see there's one there, actually three, whereby there's some negative consequences from needles and earthworms. And you go back to like, oh, how is that even possible? Well, that is because we cannot just say, like, all organic farms are alike. There's just no, we cannot make that statement. And here's a study uh, done back in 2005 that the benefits of organic farming to biodiversity actually vary among the taxon. So here we are in the US. We have a great organic law. And maybe I'm going on a little in right now, depending on the crowd, but I would make the statement that we have a terrible implication at the moment. And the terrible implication is really due to the fact that that even we have to look at the Washington Post report to the fact that this is a certified organic farm. There are three farms like that in Texas that use as much milk as 400 organic dairy farms in Wisconsin. Now, I am not seeing the benefits that I talk about or that FIBO talks about in their study 
coming from those farms. And in my opinion, they're also violating what we call the pasture rule, where 30% of their dry matter intake should come from fresh grass. And did you know that most of your organic eggs in the supermarket and your organic chicken, they come on these vehicles, right? And this is certified organic chicken, certified organic eggs. And while we can argue if there is basically a negative effect for the customer as far as like, and we can also say it's definitely better that people eat organic blueberries. This is a wonderful thing, right? It's better for your health. But we cannot say like, and stand here on the podium, and that organic farming across the board is going to be beneficial for the ecology. I cannot make that statement unless we are going back to what I consider to be the origins of organic farming. Now, when we go back to the origins of organic farming, we go back like 100 years ago, right? But let me set the record straight a little bit here because the founders of organic farming, they actually got their knowledge and insights from peasant farmers and additional farming methods. All they really did is they gave it a scientific foundation, which is very, very important. I'm not discrediting the fact that it's important that we are now in an era where we can actually, what farmers have been doing for thousands of years, that we can give the scientific foundation. The Howards are all the Howards. Uh, the indoor composting method, he learned from peasant farmers in Italy. Uh, Rudolf Steiner, I mean, he learned from peasant farmers in Germany. I mean, when he saw a farmer stirring in a barrel and sitting in it, and it was called the Preparation 500, he didn't create that. He learned it from the farmer. And actually, um, some of the things that we don't do these days is uh, the Kotonsen. You actually sing in the barrel while you're stirring the preparation. But one of the things that they found that if you read the, the agriculture testament, you read the agriculture course, lady, all four, all the things that have been common, what they agree upon, while their scientific method might be different, they all agree upon one thing, that we have to treat the farm as a living, self-contained organism. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. And I want to talk about it from three different perspectives. I want to look at it from the perspective of the landscape, from the healthy soil, and from the perspective of having domestic animals and integrated on the farm as a living organism. So what I want to share with you now are a little bit more personal. Because this is really about not giving you all the answers, how it can be done. All I can do is tell my story. But before I do that, I want to tell you that what my personal inspiration has been on creating a landscape on the farm based on the idea of a living self-contained organism. And I'm going to read you this quote from Rudolf Steiner out of the agriculture course, where he said that a great balance of woods, orchards, bushes, and meadows with a natural growth of fungi is so essential to good farming that your farm will really be more successful, even if this means a slight reduction in your tillability. On that, it's not good to do this. We're going to take some land out of production so the farm can become more productive. He said there's no true economy in using so much of your land that all things I have mentioned disappear. The resulting loss in quality will far outweigh the advantage of the other things. Without this kind of insight into the interconnections and interactions of nature, it is really almost impossible to engage in an enterprise like farming. So what Senna describes here are these five ecosystems that are really important to acknowledge that should be present on the farm as a living organism. And he goes on to say, he said, like, to find the right proportion between these different ecosystems on your farm, he said, it really, there's no science to it. You have to develop it. You have to develop the artist in yourself. This is more of an art than a science. 
And you do that by your walking the farm. And we all walk the farm, right? We walk it a lot. And we seek it. We take things in. And you have to learn to trust what you see. He said, develop your senses. And most importantly, develop your nose. So as a practical example of that, when we took the farm back in Canberra, and when we were looking for a long-term land tender, I just took the soil up from the USDA, and where's the best farmland in Columbia County? Well, the best farmland in Columbia County was farmed with potatoes and corn. So we took over a potato and corn farm. And in 2000s, when we took this back, um, it was the wettest year on records. And we really couldn't work it. And actually, one of the stuff, why was it planted in corn to begin with? There, there were still deep ruts left from the previous year. So we just left it alone. Now, this particular piece is next to the highway. And we were not able to get in there. And I just allowed everything to come up with just wanted to come up there. You can imagine what the people were thinking, right? And by right. Yeah. Sold to a farmer, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but what they were not seeing was when I would be walking in that field and the restrictions of insects and tremendous amount of pollinators and the weeds that would come up in that field. And all we did after that, we did very careful strategic mowing to allow also to have some of the grassland birds come back in there. And then later on, we started pasturing it. And that field just turned into a really productive uh, pasture over time. And therefore, after that, the, you know, at least the, the people driving by were no longer um, sitting them. At least they could see some animals out there. But the field really wasn't useful as a cropland. I had to remove that from the tillable acreage and actually create a more resilient farm there. Now, on the other hand, there were some areas that were not in agriculture that we actually put into agriculture. We were raising our pigs on pasture, and they didn't like the sun. And we had woods that were very well drained, and we said, like, well, maybe we're going to um, put the, the pigs in the woods there. And they thrived. And then it was a matter of finding the right stock density. And even in the cropland, there was tremendous amount of diversity that we could find because we were going for a CSA. With Samantha, we had a tremendous variety of crops to be going into the fields. So over time, this is what we came up with. That this land that was about 290 acres of tillable land, we took two thirds of it out, more than two thirds of it we took out, and put it back in grass and pasture. That I consider to be the best use of that land. And only 80 acres could I responsibly put into crops that were vegetables and green meal crops. And a little bit more about why so much land within the vegetable crops or even put into permanent green growth crops later. When this country you know, was taken over by the colonists, taken away from the Indians, we followed the prairie. We know that we decreased the soil health dramatically. We actually decreased the soil organic matter from where they found it at sometimes 15% to maybe about 5% right now. And this is from my old textbook of agriculture that shows that the organic matter uh, builds up very, very slowly. I'm talking here, going up from 2.5 to maybe 3.2% over 25 years by having an A. Well, it takes less than 10 years to burn it all back up again. So we know that tillage is not a great thing. So I knew that for one thing is that if I wanted to build the soil, if we found that, that farm, that corn and crop land, that had very low organic matter levels, we needed to make some changes. And the tools in my toolkit that I had available were crop rotation, cover crops, mulching, and reduced yields. And 
you basically, I always like the comparison that Eric Bell makes on weed control. It's like the many little hammers, you know, using a lot of different hammers to actually accomplish a larger goal. And this is like some of the little hammers in my toolbox. And I was inspired by creating within the farm and reducing the inputs on the farm as much as I could. Because one way to increase your organic matter on your farm is just to bring a lot of compost in. Well, we couldn't really do that because, especially in the potato land, we had elevated phosphorus and potassium levels. So I needed to, I had the challenge to increase it by just using the resources that were available on the farm itself. And carbon and nitrogen, they're free. They're right there. All we have to do is take them down. And who takes them down? It's plants and symbiosis with nitrogen-fixed bacteria and plants in general. So developing a rotation that is completely geared towards building soil health is the tool that we use. And we did it by growing a lot of really tall cover crops. And then we had tremendous weed pressure that we were finding as well. And then we introduced certain bear fellows in order to then reduce the, the weeds area. What we're finding by introducing what I call the neutral years is that yes, we increase the soil health, but these cover crops, these green crops, provided this tremendous opportunity to feed our pollinators. The other benefit it has is that we allow the CSA to dictate what they will grow. And guess what? The CSA wanted 40% of our total vegetables to be within the brassica family. Try to create a perfect four-year rotation in the brassica. You know, if 40% of your crops is in one family, it doesn't work. This rotation allowed us to do that. And the other benefit we found, we actually had labor savings. Not only were we reducing our inputs from outside, we're also reducing our inputs in labor in the vegetables because it became easier to grow them. This will be at the end of a green manure year. By the end of a green manure year, we would grow oats and peas to get ready for the cash crop year. And when you plant it in August, it gets pretty tall. So in order to work the grounds, we mowed it when a little bit of frost on the ground so it would carry the tractors and then we would mow it down. The ground was protected, but very easy to prepare it for vegetable crop production. The other thing we did is we tried to avoid using the moldboard plow as much as we can. We converted to what we call vertical tillage. So we didn't invert the soil. When we had a hard pan, we used a yeoman or a key-line plow. And for our primary and secondary tillage, we used a chisel plow with a, an S-time uh, attachment in the back that would uh, create a seed bed. And then within the vegetables, we wanted to maintain always the cover as much as we could. And in the years after the, we had a cash crop year, we would follow it with rye and veg that we would then mow with our haying equipment and bale it up. And then we use that as mulch in the garlic or in uh, the plastic culture. Great form of weed control. And we would never see any erosion, even in the years that we were having in vegetables. The other benefit we found with that is that, you know, you're doing these things, right? You develop these things, and you're finding out things like, oh, actually, I didn't realize that actually this is great because we no longer have to wash the vegetables. They stay clean. And water can be a real problem when you try to adhere to food safety standards. So not having to wash any of these crops was a great benefit. Now some of the crops that we're using in these neutral years, if you look at sorghum sedan, it's usually a mix of a legume and a cereal. And then I'm trying to throw in some flowers. And I want to run through those things, like a little bit more like going through the season, what that would look like. 
because we go muster it in the spring. We do that because we need to find a few more things. We need to work that under because we have soil pathogens. We want to reduce them. But guess what? It's the earliest pollinator. This is wonderful. You know, pollinators need a place to find the nectar, and now we have mustard. What follows after that are the bees and the delbeans that are specifically in the rotation to fix nitrogen. Or you drink water from Cornell, send her graduate students out. They wanted to know how much nitrogen were we really fixing before we plowed it down for a broccoli, cauliflower, and cabbage. She found there was a staggering 200 pounds of nitrogen being fixed. Way more than we need, even. Another crop we would like to grow is a yellow button tree clover. That's the next pollinator in the line, but also can break up your heart pan. We love crops like crimson clover. Buckwheat is a great pollinator. It's really the only problem with buckwheat is, is that, you know, find your right time to mow it if you don't disturb the bees because you're here. Same as sweet clover. You know, you can do it late at night when the bees leave because it is like a, like, you know, being in a, a beehive almost. The, the students that I work with at the farm, they say, like, let's push the envelope, let's do something else. And they go like, like on Susan, and like, ah, oh, it's kind of going to work. That's not going to work. Like, well, okay. Actually, it worked. It's amazing how um, they, they really did quite well. Well, my all-time favorite in order to increase uh, organic matter uh, has been soybean. A little bit of soybean, with lots of sun and cotillaria, and then I mentioned some sunflowers. And it's a great place where you find lots of insects, lots of pollinators, and then later on, when the cotillaria starts flowering in the fall, it's full of birds. It's really amazing. It's just a I mean, this is like nine feet tall. So what we are seeing, and this is a lot of tillers, okay, in fall. This is not like, we've seen over the years, and it's humble, but being able to increase your soil organic matter by about 1%. And, you know, this is probably not very impressive, right? I mean, you probably had speakers on here before, like, I can raise 5% in two years. I have no idea how to do it. I'm a little skeptical. We plow under a lot of biomass. And um, this is what we were able to do. But you can see that in those years where we're growing the vegetables, you know, we're mineralizing that soil organic matter. But then we're building it back up again. Then we're taking it down, building it back up again. So over the years, I have to say that um, we had a couple of experiences during the vegetable years where I was like, wow, what are we doing here? We did have erosion. And I, you know, this is nice, and I only show you the nice pieces here, right? <laughs> I, I, I should have included some pieces that were where we really are very humble. And one of the humble moments was when there was one night, at seven inches from rain, in one night, and the students and I, we went out, and we looked at, and we saw all this very, very slight hill, and all that beautiful cups on the wash down after we seeded the carrots. And it's like, wow, this is, you know, we need to find a way to find a solution for we were really looking at, and I just decided by my own evolution, I started looking at, like, what does it mean, the soil? What's the role of soil in the context of the farm as a self-contained organism? And I said, like, I myself, well, if the farm is a living organism, then it should behave like any other living organism, correct? Let's look at a, you know, single-cell organism here. What allows it to maintain its integrity? And what allows it to maintain its integrity is the semi-permeable wall. It's a semi-permeable wall that discriminates what goes in and what goes out. It's not closed, right? It discriminates. It's really important to look at that. High organisms like ourselves, we have a skin. 
that protects us from the environment. Now, if the skin breaks, then again, we're from the infection. Of course, everybody right now is afraid of coronavirus. But the coronavirus will not enter through the skin. Right? That's the kind of much weaker stuff than that. Our skin is a really wonderful protection against pathogens in our environment. The soil is like the skin of the earth. And the question is, when you do open it up, isn't it like breaking the skin? Or violating you know, the integrity of the cell uh, membrane? So I really wanted to decrease the amount of tillage that we were doing on our farm in order to make sure that we are maintaining the integrity. And as I am an uh, avid reader of soil science journals, I became more aware of recent studies that pointed to the role of carboscular mycorrhizae. This particular study done in Bosnia and Holland, what they did is they took dune sand and they planted um, dune grass in two months. One they added arboscular mycorrhizae and the other one they didn't. And then they started feeding them with lots of fertilizer, phosphorus and nitrogen. There were 50 to 60 percent less losses of nitrogen and phosphorus in the one that had arboscular mycorrhizae. But here's the ticker there's no mycorrhizae unless you have living roots. So, you cannot just say, like, let that's mycorrhizae to that dune sand. Nothing would happen. It's really about a symbiotic relationship that we have. So the students and I were looking at that, what are we going to do? How can we reduce tillage and maintain that there are always living roots in the soil? So we started looking at rolling and cramping. And so we, we, we did a couple of different crops where we uh, tried to uh, plant our vegetables directly to ascending cover crop. Um, sweet corn was one of them. Um, we both planted it and direct seeded it. And beginner's luck, we uh, actually had a really good sand and really good weed control. And um, you know, we were like really tickled that we were so great. But I think that, again, a little similar to my neutral years, there were these surprises again. And here was one surprise. Because what we did is with the students said, let's do side by side. Let's look at broccoli planted to Austrian winter bees and look at broccoli planted when we do the conventional fields, the chisel plow, the whole nine yards. Same fertilization, everything the same. And just at, at one plot, we would incorporate the Austrian bees, and the other place we would plant um, right. The water holding capacity of the soil is immensely better where we didn't till. Well, that was a nice, pleasant surprise. These plants were just healthier. And then there was another surprise that was brought to me by the crew. And uh, the crew went out harvesting cauliflower. And um, one morning they said to me, like, can you please harvest the cauliflower in the no-till plot? I said, why? I said, well, because it doesn't stink. It doesn't stink. So I went out there, and indeed, it didn't. When you harvest cauliflower, you throw the dead leaves on the ground, and they kind of rot, right, until ground. On the no-till grounds, they actually decompose. I was really, really surprised. John Hendrick Krupp uh, came over from Germany. He spent a couple of days with us. And uh, we went out and he said, I want to see what the soil looks like. He said, OK, let's take a, let's take a shovel. Let's go out there. And uh, as we were digging on these plants, we, uh, this is a soil that was previously conventional sweet corn for about 50 years. Soil organic at about 1.2%. And when we dug into these tilt plots, the ground was dusty and blocky, you know, it was dry. 
This is what we looked like when we were going into the bench once, and warts were everywhere. There was these wormholes. I mean, that was the moment really that we were all sold. Like this is the way to do it. But I won't lie about it. We had beginner's luck, and we were aware of all the challenges that we uh, were faced with, and we knew that we needed better weed control because we had access to a lot of people that could help us hold the weeds in case it went wrong. So I'm going to continue my work at Philia um, Farm, and um, I'm very happy that I received the grant to find out if there's particular seed mixes that work better, that work both to provide us with nitrogen out of the green manure crop, but also provide proper weeds as well. The last I want to focus on is managing domestic animals. And the reason why it is so important, because again, we want to have a lot of our land in grass, and domestic animals should not be fed corn and soybeans. I don't want to offend anyone in the audience. I'm sorry. But animals are not supposed to eat grain. Well, I'm talking about, you know, cows and sheep, right? I'm not talking about pigs and chickens here right now. But when we talk about, they, they are supposed to be grazed. And if we are going to think about the farm as a living self-sustaining organism, we need a lot of grass on that farm. And if you have grass, you might want to raise your animals on there. And we know that, historically, that this land was actively managed by the Native Americans. Of course, you know, when white people came over, they said, like, oh, this is all wild. That's not a wild. It's not a wild area. This was highly, highly managed. You know, respect our they, they knew exactly what they we were doing. It just didn't look like that we farmers tend to look at a farm field. So there were 40 million bisons roaming the prairie. Um, there's actually 31 million beef cows and 9 million dairy cows. Mm, that's how conveniently equal, isn't that? Can we just put the prairie back in, you know, can we put the Midwest back in the prairie, graze them all, and, you know, do rotational grazing? And I kind of be done on the right scale. Well, here's a farm in Texas, 5,000 cows, rotational grazing. They can do it. Brown. All these people that are doing it, they're doing fantastic work out there. And then there's this, you know, cows are bad for the environment. Well, all these things don't take into consideration the tremendous benefit of grass. If we stop planting corn and soybeans and put it back in grass, the benefits are that there's less nitrous oxide going in the atmosphere and there's less leaching. As I described earlier, when you talk about a healthy soil that can hold nutrients, because all of that energy fertilizer is coming from the cornfields, right? And I know cows, they burp. So don't eat meat, guys, because they burp. But we can. And I think we should decrease our consumption of meat. I am absolutely convinced that we should. So I would be against that we will be less productivity. But we can also do things that allow cows to not breathe out as much methane. And all you have to do is feed them one pound of seaweed a day. This is really beneficial to their health. And think about it. If we have grass farms, and we are actually having, we have these programs that allow them for to defer their grazing methods, what it could mean for the biodiversity, the grassland birds could actually come back to the Midwest. So let's go to the big picture here. And we know that the farm is a living organism. We know that the earth is a living organism. And we're all getting this together, right? This is a finite earth, and we have finite amount of resources. This is the earth's portion of farmlands, but this is actually the earth's portion of 
tillable land. It's a very, very small sliver, and I think it's only up to us to make sure that we take care of it. And right now, that sliver of land is definitely under direct attack, not just from development, but in the near future also by flooding. A lot of that land is very close to the ocean. We're going to lose a lot of that. So we have to make sure that we mitigate these climate change in order to maintain that farmland. And I think I want to encourage all of you to see yourself really on that place where I think you are able to make a very important contribution to rethink how we interact with the world around us. Use organic farmers understand that better than anyone else. You understand better than anyone else that nature is not just out there. We are nature. So if we can make that change and transform the people around us, talk about what we do every day. You know, we need to, we need to have that conversation. I think we can actually see a different world ahead of us. So on that note, I want to open it up for questions. How do y'all lay all that hay or straw yes, on your plastic culture? By hand? Oh, no. It's not applied by hand. We actually have a bale processor that places it in between. Yeah, so the question was if we apply all that straw and uh, mulch by hand. We actually talked about it a little bit yesterday in our workshops that um, we have this process um, called weakest link. Uh, on a farm with my fiance and we used to give us feedback what job they ate the most. <laughs> that, that was one of them. So we, we got a build processor to help them lay forward. Now it didn't create another most horrible job for the farmers to drive the tractor to build processors. Teff is a, a tropical grain that is very fast growing and then molded. So I'm going to experiment with that because we used to use a living cover in the past that didn't provide a complete control, and that's how we ended up with straw. And it would eliminate us having to build straw, we actually work the straw right under into the soil. Hi, thanks so much for that. Um, one of the really frustrating arguments that I hear all the time is that organic cannot feed the world. If we start talking about scaling up and we get more organic farming or farmers, that we're not going to be able to, you know, produce nothing. Even Fibble put that in their report that, you know, one negative was we won't have enough productivity. And yet, when I looked at your presentation, it seemed that you took land out of production, but still perhaps increased the nutrient density in the food you produced, and maybe even increased the economic health, I don't know, of your farm. So I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit more to that point of what productivity means to you. Um, I think it's a really important thing to discuss when we're talking about climate change and how to move forward. That's an excellent question. I have talked a lot about these beautiful years, and the biggest limiting factor for farmers to adopt it is access to land, access to cropland. And this is just about an unequitable distribution of land, really, that we don't have access to good farmlands as organic farmers. There's plenty of cropland available to be able to practice your rotation whereby you can take some of your land out of production, put it in green manures in order to build the facility that you need for your cash crops, but you do need to have access to it. Um, but as my mentor, Chuck um, time from Equity Tuscany, ownership is a bundle of rights. And the question really is, is that who owns what's the bundle? So even when we look at the lands, 
We, we work with other organizations as well, like open space organizations who own development rights. Equity Plus owns the title to the land. But wrote the 99-year ground lease to us as farmers, whereby they would ensure that this land would remain affordable to future farming generations. And I think we'll be trying to work outside, really, of the, the economic system as much as we could. Because we know that this kind of commitment that we need in order to allow the farm to thrive just doesn't exist yet. And I'm really glad that this is continuing. Uh, I'm no longer at Roxbury Farm, but there's still this cooperative and beneficial relationship. And what it really meant for me is that, again, even when it came to the farm business, I really had to give them all my numbers. And I had to surrender everything I was doing and, and let them help me make these financial decisions. The farm members set the share price of the CSA. I did not. I have no hand in that. And it takes a certain amount of cost to be able to do that. I'm not fully answering your questions. I'm just telling you a story. But I hope this is helpful. Do you have uh, a model of this structure that you all have put together that others can possibly replicate? Can you talk about the ground lease? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Equity Trust um, has a model ground lease on their website. And you can definitely take that and modify it for your uh, particular use. And I'm working right now, one of the things that I'm doing is that uh, in the Northeast, I'm working with a number of different tax centers where we're modifying these leases because they are, they need to be very specific for um, the kind of farms you work with and for the kind of uh, landowners that you're working with. But it's a good starting point. So I'm both equity plus. The Schumacher Foundation created an, an, another ground lease that you can look at as well. So different farmers have worked with different organizations to develop this ground lease. I think we're, we're there. So please join me in thanking And that is how the keynote address wrapped up at the Organic Association of Kentucky Conference. Back on March 7th, right before the pandemic lockdown took place, uh, the last big public gathering I went to uh, out at the Louisville Marriott East. Uh, Louisville was honored to host the Organic Association of Kentucky's conference this year, and that address was by Jean-Paul Stewart Cortens, titled Growing Climate Solutions and Enhancing Biodiversity Through Agriculture. Well, stay tuned, my friends. Coming up in just a minute here on Sustainability Now, we've got your community action calendar. So get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out and get ready to take action for sustainability this week. And we'll sing one song for my whole Kentucky home, for my whole Kentucky home far away. Now the young folks roll on that little coffin floor. Oh, maybe all happy and bright. By and by, hard times will come a knocking at the door. My whole Kentucky home, good night. I said, weep no more, my lady. Oh, and weep no more today. 
And we are back here on Forward Radio WFMP LP Louisville, broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. My name is Justin Mogg, and this is Sustainability Now. And what makes it sustainable now is you getting involved and taking action for sustainability this week. So get those pencils sharpened in your calendars out. A few notes before we get to our calendar this week. There may be some possible delays in yard waste collection in Louisville Metro. So uh, if you've got your yard waste out waiting to get picked up and composted and it doesn't happen right away, leave it a day or two. It will get there eventually. Since early March, Metro Public Works has adjusted its staffing levels, start times, and other safety measures to provide a safe work environment for their employees complying with CDC guidelines and helping mitigate the impact of COVID-19 while providing uninterrupted waste collection and recycling services to residents. Solid Waste Management Services is comprised of 96 members who service 21 collection routes in the Urban Services District. That number is impacted by day-to-day staffing factors, which may cause a one- or two-day delay in yard waste collection in some routes, while trash and recycle collection schedules have not been impacted. When there are changes to waste collection schedules, a message is sent through Recycle Coach letting residents know. This is a great communication tool, but you have to be signed up to receive the messages. On the smartphone app or web app, simply click Set Reminders. There are also waste-related events, including paper shredding events, waste drop-off events, and the No Waste webinar series that get announced through Recycle Coach. So you can download the free Recycle Coach app at the App Store or Google Play, or you can use the web app online at louisvilleky.gov slash recyclecoach. Also, this note from the Office of Resilience and Community Service, uh, Louisville Metro Government reminds residents about the availability of rent and utility assistance for income-eligible households impacted by the pandemic. Two programs launched in July to help residents in need of assistance. There's an eviction prevention program and an Heap Summer Cooling Program. You can learn more at louisvilleky.gov. On a similar vein, low-income households may qualify for a 10% sewer bill discount under a new emergency wastewater rate assistance program offered by MSD. And uh, it will run through next year, through July 31st of 2021. For eligibility information or to apply online, go to louisvillemsd.org slash E-W-A-R-A-P. That's E-W-R-A-P. Residents can also call 502-540-6000 or email customer relations at louisvillemsd.org to request a paper application in the mail. Also want to let you know that three UofL health sites are now offering free COVID-19 testing. Three of these sites have started offering the free testing to anyone in the community. Appointments are available seven days a week downtown in South Louisville and in Bullitt County. Funding from the state is covering the cost of the testing, so it's free to the community, but appointments are required. Simply call 502-588-0414 to schedule your free COVID test. 
And now let's get to our calendar. Tuesday, August 18th at 10 a.m., maybe simultaneous to some of you hearing this, but uh, the Kentucky Conservation Committee will be on Canopy Cafe, featuring conversations about good business with leaders from diverse sectors. The stimulating conversations are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 10 a.m. on Canopy's social media, at CanopyKY. Canopy is proud to feature Lane Boldman, director of the Kentucky Conservation Committee, on Tuesday the 18th at 10 a.m. You can tune in on Facebook at CanopyKY. And while you're there, check out Canopy's Charter for Good Business. Canopy's mission is to grow Kentucky businesses to positively impact people, our planet, and our future. Canopy is trying to generate 1,000 signatures of Kentuckians who believe that business can be a catalyst to help solve some of our toughest social and environmental challenges. If you agree, you can sign the Charter for Good Business by, by visiting canopyky.org. Also coming up on Tuesday the 18th in the evening at 7 p.m., the Greater Louisville Sierra Club will host their monthly program virtually on the Convent Care for the Earth. The club's August program will feature Carolyn Cromer, the Ecological Sustainability Director for the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth in Bardstown, Kentucky. Carolyn will talk about her work with the sisters and how they are living out their mission to care for the earth through setting a greenhouse gas emissions goal, introducing regular plant-based meals, installing solar panels, and more. Carolyn Cromer has worked in environmental science for 20 years now with a master's degree in ecology and forestry. She managed Blackacre State Nature Preserve before moving out to California to manage nature preserves for the Napa Valley Land Trust. Upon returning to Kentucky, she worked for Louisville Metro Parks as project manager for the Louisville Loop Signs and Trailheads and the Southwest Greenways Master Plan. She was watershed coordinator for Curry for Curry's Fork in Oldham County and then started a science and technology program for Girl Scouts of Kentuckiana. Carolyn has been now with the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth for three years. The registration link for this talk on Tuesday the 18th, 7 p.m. is at LouisvilleSierraClub.org. Now, coming up on Wednesday the 19th at 2 p.m., there'll be a webinar on saving paper in the new normal, organizational behavior change opportunities and tools. By reducing paper use, organizations not only create significant environmental benefits, but they save money. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, paper use has plummeted as organizations have been forced to adapt to online operations. But how can organizations continue to maintain the benefits of saving paper once operations resume in the new normal? This webcast, hosted by Root Solutions and the Environmental Paper Network, will discuss how businesses, schools, and other organizations can use this period of disruption and adaptation as a window of opportunity to build paper conservation into their habits, culture, and systems. The webcast will cover key strategies for saving paper, how to identify and overcome barriers to saving paper, how to use tools from behavioral science, including defaults, commitments, norms, and prompts, how to engage individuals and teams in the effort. 
They'll highlight lessons from Turning the Page, a behavior change toolkit for reducing paper use that was developed by Root Solutions and the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education through their work applying behavioral science to paper saving within higher education campuses. You can learn more about this Wednesday, the 19th, 2 p.m. webinar and register at bit.ly, B-I-T slash paper change bit.ly slash paper change also on wednesday the 19th in the evening at 6 to 7 p.m it's our virtual green drinks louisville with the kentucky state beekeepers association this month's green drinks hosted by the louisville sustainability council features the kentucky state beekeepers association or ksba it's a volunteer-led nonprofit organization dedicated to apiculture in kentucky and border states they represent backyard hobby and commercial beekeepers and they welcome anyone interested in beekeeping regardless of knowledge and experience and you can mo learn more at kybees.org ksba's mission is to make kentucky beekeeping successful through support programs and resources their objectives are to promote legislation and assist beekeeping as a local state and national industry or hobby to encourage and charter local associations that are affiliated with ksba to inform members about honeybees and beekeeping to provide a forum for training in the art of beekeeping and production of honeybee products to inform the public about the importance and contribution of honeybees to the welfare of all and to encourage others to become members kentucky beekeeping programs and resources include beekeeping knowledge base of best management practices the calendar of national regional and local events for conferences meetings bee schools and others cost sharing for educational programs grants and awards kentucky honey and other bee product sales at the kentucky state fair honey booth buy local marketing for bee products and services from local producers kentucky beekeeping mentoring program to mentor new beekeepers and certified kentucky honey producers you can learn more and register to get the link to join green drinks on wednesday the 19th at 6 p.m at louisville sustainability council.org also want to let you know that the Peace Education Program and Peacecasters will host a virtual youth influencers camp, the influencers camp this week, Wednesday through Friday, the August 19th to 21st. It'll be uh, three days of 90-minute sessions on Zoom from 4 to 5.30 p.m. You can register now for the first ever virtual youth influencers camp from Peacecasters, where young people come together to share stories, create powerful social media messages, and collaborate online in order to create real social change. This three-day virtual camp is for people of middle and high school age who are looking to get involved in movements for change and to use their voice to uplift and inspire others online. You'll get to play games, practice using social media to interrupt violence and bullying, team up on real media projects, and learn from the stories of other young people who are changing the world with social media. Get more info and register at peaceeducationprogram.org. It's free and it runs Wednesday through Friday, the 19th through the 21st, every day from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Again, more information at peaceeducationprogram.org. 
And the last in the No Waste webinar series is this Thursday, the 20th at 3 p.m. All webinars are presented live at 3 through WebEx. You can register and find recordings of previous webinars at louisvillewastedistrict.org slash webinars. And this last one on Thursday, the 20th at 3 p.m. is on illegal dumping. You can learn about how the city handles illegal dumping and ways to prevent it. If you missed any of the previous webinars on how to recycle right, backyard composting, hard to dispose of items, and the Louisville Waste Collection System, you can go to louisvillewastedistrict.org slash webinars. On Friday the 21st at 3 p.m., it'll be How to Keep Your Home Healthy During the Pandemic. The Center for Environmental Health will host a virtual town hall on how to keep your home healthy during the pandemic. Engage in conversation with thought leaders to get the information you need to protect the health of your home and family. In conversation with the Center's CEO, Michael Green, will be several esteemed speakers, Dr. Vin Gupta, MD, uh, a professor and health policy expert. Vin is a trusted advisor and contributor to national and international media outlets. Uh, Kelly Vlakas Hanks, president and CEO of Ecos. Kelly is transforming the cleaning products industry with innovative plant-powered solutions and sustainable manufacturing practices. Dr. Tyrone B. Hayes, professor of integrative biology from UC Berkeley. Tyrone's Research focuses on endocrine disrupting contaminants and their impact on environmental health and public health. This virtual town hall will be livecast on YouTube and Facebook, so attendance is free, but an RSVP is required. So go to ceh.org to learn more and register. Again, this is from the Center for Environmental Health, so go to ceh.org to RSVP. Also going to remind you that this Saturday and every Saturday through November from 9 a.m. to noon, there is a new farmer's market at the Opportunity Community Garden at 18th and Magazine. Louisville Metro has partnered with Louisville Grows and Black Community Development Corporation to turn a former vacant lot into Opportunity Corner, a functional space with edible landscaping, a community garden, and a shipping container that serves as a pop-up office and retail space to support budding entrepreneurs it's all part of the broader Vision Russell plan. After successfully celebrating its opening on July 25th, the festivities have continued with a pop-up farmer's market every Saturday through November from 9 a.m. to noon at 18th Street and Magazine. Be sure to stop by to support your local farmers and the Russell neighborhood. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you stay tuned to Ford Radio. Lots of great stuff coming up, and I'll be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well, stay safe, stay strong, stay masked up, and stay six feet apart. Yeah,